This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Welcome to this latest edition of Window on the East. Here we are at the EBRD's 25th anniversary uh, annual meeting. We at BNE Intellinews are proud to be sponsoring this meeting and we're putting out a daily newspaper throughout the, uh, the summit, which you can see on our website. I have with me here some old friends, Ben Aris, our, our Editor-in-Chief, Carmen Velake, who's our Caucasus correspondent, and Jason Corcoran, who of course writes for us from Moscow. So Ben, the EBRD today, they put out their um, economic forecast for the region. What caught your eye? Uh, first thing is that the outlook was downgraded slightly, so from you know, poor to slightly even more poor. That they're predicting something on the order of 1.4% growth for the whole region. However, the story um, within the region is, is there's this dichotomy. So if you look at anything that's connected to, to the EU or Central Europe, those things are doing relatively well. They're all growing at somewhere between 2.5% up to 4%. And there's no change there. But if so you that's Poland, at, Hungary, Poland, Hungary, Baltics. But also down into, into, the, into the, the Balkans. Uh, yeah they're doing relatively well because they're connected to Europe. Whereas anyone on the other side of the fence in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, they're doing really badly, particularly Russia and Ukraine, which have both tanked. And I was curious to see that there's this breaking in two of the region, that sort of the integration thing is going in the opposite direction. But the chief economist, the acting chief economist, was saying that this this is largely due to oil because the EBRD region uh, is the most heavily dependent on oil exports of any region in the world. Some 40% of exports is oil, whereas other emerging markets is 20%, and the world in general is 10%. So they're saying when the oil recovers, then this region will pick up. But it also highlights the fact um, that all the countries in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, are so heavily dependent on Russia. Yeah, this was sure. another thing that came out. That, Biggest know, economy in the region by far. Indeed. And so Russia's, you know, sneezes as everybody else's colds. <clears throat> and the exception to this was Kazakhstan, which turns out to be much closer integrated with the European Union than I, I didn't realise. But it's, Nazarbayev has been actually very active in, in bringing in the EU and that they have their own sovereign result. And in uh, our Russia. interviews with uh, uh, Summer Chakrabarti, the EBRD, uh, president, he talks a lot about Kazakhstan almost as a reform star pupil in recent years. Yeah, no, years. if you go there, I mean, it's transformed in the same way that Russia has, that the administration there has used the oil money to invest, build infrastructure, and it stands out income. But the, the most interesting thing, which wasn't in the report, which came out in the press conference, was he says, look, the dip that we're seeing, particularly in Eastern Europe, is oil driven, and that will fix itself when oil recovers. But what worries him is that the productivity gains and the investment that's going into this part of the world has started to fall, and it's like slowing down dramatically. And for the long term, this is a big problem. And this doesn't come out in the economic report forecast that they gave, but it says it's a deep structural problem going forward, which is, I don't know, connected to the point you know, that everybody's reached, the, they've, they've finished the catch-up growth, and now we're going to the second phase, and people are not doing the reforms needed to go to this, this new game. It's not all doom and gloom, though. You say 1.6%, or 1.4%, sorry, for 2016, uh, which is down from the 1.6% for this year that they forecast in November. But that's still up from just 0.5% growth across the region in 2015. Yeah, no, you you can definitely say that the the crisis of 2014 
which by many counts was worse than 2008. People don't realize that this has been a very nasty but you know, low-profile crisis, that we're through the bowl of that and we're coming out. And now the argument is, when will growth return? Will it be the second half of this year? Will it be in 2017? But certainly 2017, you know, they're, they're talking about 2.5% growth for Russia, whereas you're not looking at any this year. So you know, the worst is past. I mean, going forward now, it's about starting to put in structural reforms for the long term, so that you don't go to 1% growth, 2% growth going forward. You can get back to 4 5% growth. But they seem very pessimistic that anybody in the eastern half of the patch is actually tackling any of those issues, which is a worry. And just briefly, China, the impact of China on the region? Well, that's another interesting thing that came out, that you, know, you take Russia's influence on somewhere like Tajikistan is obvious, but um, 1% slowdown in Russian growth will cause a 0.2% slowdown in the Baltic states. Right. And that China's impact of its slowdown has now overtaken Russia in terms of influence. Russia's... Uh, across the region as a whole. Across the region as a whole, but right. particularly in Central Asia. Right. And this is a function not just of the loans and money, but the investments. They're now investing into, man- into, into infrastructure, manufacturing, they're causing consumption... And uh, China's, this whole Silk Road project, which people... Can pull both ways. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, they, they've committed, I mean, someone like Tajikistan and uh, completely dependent on Chinese investment. But they've now become the sort of, they've overtaken Russia in terms of uh, influence in the region. We'll, we'll come back to Russia in a moment with, with Jason. But, but for now, let's just turn to uh, um, Carmen Velake. You've been writing about our second biggest market, Turkey. Indeed, I went to an investment forum about uh, green energies in Turkey, and um, the power sector in Turkey is actually very interesting at the moment, because Turkey being a net importer of natural gas and oil has sustained a very high current account deficit um, that has decreased slightly in recent years because of the decline in oil and gas prices. Nevertheless, it's a recurrent uh, problem that the government has said it is seeking to address by promoting green energy projects. Uh, However, there is a disconnect between what the government actually says and what it does, because while it has been very successful at attracting billions of dollars in um, renewable energy projects from IFIs, it also seeks um, as much as $12 billion investment in coal-fired plants from China. So um, at the forum, actually the forum was dominated by private sector um, representatives and turns out that uh, the private sector has been driving um, both the financing and the construction of these uh, green energy projects. Uh, To date, hydropower is the most important clean clean source of energy in Turkey, Um, but it's apparently very, it's crowded. There are a lot of construction projects going on. The government has financed very large ones, like uh, there's a hydropower plant called Atatürk that has an install capacity of 8,000 megawatts, which is um, the capacity of uh, some developing countries. Um, But what the private sector is doing is that it's looking at medium and small-sized projects. Um, I spoke to the executive vice president of uh, the third largest bank in the country, Guarantee Bank, and it's one of the leaders in... um, financing uh, renewable energy projects. Um, they have spent some $4 billion, particularly on hydropower and wind uh, projects. And they're now, they launched this interesting uh, scheme whereby they want to finance 
very small scale solar farm um, in a retail banking framework, um, wow. as in they will... So regular regular members of the public can invest. Exactly. They can sort of build... Like micro bonds or something. They can build farms that are as small as one megawatt in full capacity and just approach one of the almost 1,000 uh, branches of the bank and apply for a loan. So Turkey's obviously been getting a lot of headlines in the West for concerns about the state of democracy and so on. Are you saying to us, Carmen, that Turkey could soon become a, a pin-up among um, uh, environmental campaigners Not for good all. things that it's doing? <laughs> Not at all. So basically what, what's happening here is that um, the, the, the AKP administration is clearly very neocon in its um, sort of uh, policy to economic development. Um, they're seeking, you know, road infrastructure, sometimes without due diligence, without environmental permits. So there are a lot of problems in Turkey. And actually, the government, as I mentioned, um, it's seeking to double its installed capacity of coal-fired plants. Um, And Turkey has become the third largest investor in in coal in the world after China and India. So actually, (laughs) quoting the CFO of this very large holding in Turkey called Akpan, um, he said that he doesn't understand how some people could call uh, Turkey a role model for, right. for um, I guess, sustainable development because it is not. And I guess he's, he was a very optimistic. Uh, he, he kept talking about the country's um, accession to the EU. Um, okay, and how so there's a bit he, of window dressing like, going on here, Well, no, not really. I mean, he, he wanted the country to join the EU, but he said, I don't know how it, Turkey could ever align itself with EU environmental regulations, given the state it's in right now. So Turkey is by no means an example. And of course, here we are in London, and um, the issue of Turkey and the EU has also been in British politics with David Cameron saying he can't see it happening for many, many, many years. Jason, so you've been up to your usual tricks. (laughs) You're obviously a long-term Moscow resident, very well-known writer on business and politics uh, in Russia. Um, Since sanctions uh, were imposed, the EBRD's been trying to cling on, hasn't it, to its biggest portfolio of projects, the biggest market in the region, Russia. But you think something might be afoot? Yeah, a small correction. Uh, It used to be the biggest portfolio. It's now Turkey, actually. There you go. Um, They're in a bit of a bind. Uh, For my reporting, I believe, um, there are winding down projects. And this winding down will accelerate if sanctions by the EU are renewed, which we believe they will be. And we're seeing next month, right? Yes. Yeah. And we're seeing evidence. Their portfolio last year was six point five billion euros. Today, it's a billion less. So even if they don't decide unilaterally to pull out of Russia, current burn rates, the portfolio will evaporate in five years' time. Now, when we've interviewed uh, Suma Chakrabarti and other BBRD uh, executives, their line has been. We're maintaining our existing Russian portfolio, but we're not adding to it. Are you saying they may actually go beyond that now and start actively selling off the portfolio that they have? Yes, well, they've been selling off um, assets in banks and selling off stakes in supermarket chains over the past year, very quietly under the radar. It's not under B&E's radar, of course, because we've been noticing it. And staff in Moscow tell me they fear for their own jobs. They have been redesignated to work in Central Asia, on, in Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, because the projects and new investment has frozen in, in, in Russian um, 
assets. You've also been talking to Sergei Guriev, well known to us Russia hands, who is now the chief economist, soon to be, of, of the EBRD. What did he have to say today? Yeah, he's the incoming uh, chief economist. He starts in September, but he's already got his foot under the table. Uh, very respected guy, former chief rector at the New Economic School, and he was once an advisor to Dmitry Medvedev when he was uh, when prime minister and author of the privatization program. He is very cynical about the new reform agenda from President Putin, and he thinks economic growth, if it returns in Russia, will be very small next year, and we could be looking at more zastoy stagnation. So, Ben, the EBRD number just out on Russia, is is it minus 1.2 for this yes, year? Yes, minus 1.2, which is exactly on the, the B&E consensus of uh, top 12 sure. investment banks, minus 1.2, returning to growth of, of 2.5. In 2017. Yeah, and there's actually quite a widespread on you know, how much how bad it will be this year. Some people are even uh, predicting a little bit of growth for Russia, but most people are saying around minus 1, 1.5. Given the big spread of money across the oil price, right? Yeah, and a lot depends on what happens to the oil price. Uh, but then there's a lot more disagreement about next year, 2017, and the EBRD is on the relatively optimistic side of 2.5. But I understand that Guriev is, is actually down on that because they think that the reforms and Kudrinus, the former finance minister, has been brought into... Who's back, in. sort of. But he has no power. He should have been made prime minister. If he Did- was made prime minister then he could implement these reports. So it's, it's a bit of window dressing ahead of elections. Kudrin, of course, a, 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 a real kind of star reformer in the minds of many investors. Uh, I think various publications called him Finance Minister of the Year um, during the 2000s as he helped to consolidate Russia's uh, 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 budget. Is Guriev convinced? No, he's not. Um, Guriev is, I mean, he's grateful that he'll be allowed back into Russia. Putin has made it clear that he will not be arrested. He fled um, Russia in 2013 because there was a new investigation against Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the former owner of UCOS, and he was questioned. And he fled, like many others, from the liberal intelligentsia to Paris and to London. And, uh, I mean, I think he's, he's very cynical about the future. Do you think it's uh, quite a controversial move by the EPRD shareholders to appoint Guriev is their chief economist. It's very pointed. He's incredible intellectual. He's maverick. He's a great thinker. And he's not afraid to call them black as black. On that note, we'll leave it for today. You can read the work of Ben and Carmen and Jason uh, on our website. We'll be back tomorrow for more from the EBRD 25th Annual Meeting here in London. Thank you for listening. <laughs>